Father God, you are so good and so loving, so kind and generous and gracious. My prayer right now, Father, for me especially and for my friends who I love and care for, is that you would open our hearts to receive the truth in your word. And we're looking at marriage today. This is what Paul has in the course of writing Colossians brought us to. This is what you and your providence and sovereignty saw fit for us to look at today. And my prayer, Father, is that whether we're married, whether we're single, whether we're on the verge of getting married, Father, whatever it might look like in our lives right now, Father, that we would see something of you and Christ Jesus, your Son, that we would see the glory um, of the gospel of Jesus Christ in and through the reality of marriage as a human institution, Father. You have so much to teach me and my friends today. I pray that you would do it powerfully, Father, and I pray that I would not get in the way. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Genesis 1. We're going to not start in Colossians immediately. Um, If you've been with us for the last two weeks, we've been in a series um, that we are calling Chosen Ones, and we've been working through our way through the book of Colossians, and now we are looking at the part where Paul, the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is addressing the Colossian church in referring to them as the people of God, chosen ones, holy and beloved. And today we're going to continue to engage the same concept of what does God's family look like at an individual level, at a community level, and now we're going even deeper into families. So this week and next week we'll focus on families. And... um, What we're looking at right now in Colossians has historically been referred to as the household codes, and these appear in various apostolic letters explaining how the Christian life is worked out in specific institutions that are shared by everyone, whether they're Christian or not, Um, like marriage, which is what we're looking at today. Um, What is God's purpose for our marriages? And uh, before I begin, and I mentioned this in the prayer, it is my prayer that this be the case, Um, I just want to make something really clear at the start. Uh, Just because we're talking about marriage, just because we're focusing on this issue about uh, this concept of marriage, it does not mean that this is only for folks who are married. Um, If you're single, and I genuinely and sincerely believe this, there is something that God has for you today in what we're looking at, something profound. And it's not just for if you do get married or when you do get married. This is for you right now in your life today, a way that you can see God, a way that you can see who you are in Christ Jesus that, God willing, will be helpful and encouraging. Um, so hang on for me. If at the beginning it seems like we're getting through a lot of stuff that doesn't really mean a lot to you right now, personally. What we're looking at will go beyond marriage. What we're looking at is not just about two people getting together and wanting to make children or two people getting together and falling in love and wanting to start their lives together. That's not what we're looking at today. It's not all of what we're looking at today. We will be looking at something much greater, much more massive, and much more profound than all of those things. And so what I want to do, how I want to guide us through this passage in Genesis and then Colossians and then we'll be in Ephesians, is I want to uh, ask three questions. I want our time together today be spent revolving, orbiting uh, around three questions. Here they are. Number one, where did marriage come from? Where did it originate? 
How did it come to be? Number two, how does marriage function? What should it look like in action? We were looking at a marriage that was healthy. What would it look like? And number three, what does marriage mean? What is the ultimate purpose of marriage? Why do we have this institution in the world? So let's start by looking at number one. And I want to turn to Genesis 1.26. That's where we'll begin today. Verse 26. Here's what it says. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. So this is the creation of humanity. This is the beginning of our species. This is what it looks like. With, in the eternal Godhead, which Mackenzie was mentioning here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is a decision made in the course of creation, right here in Scripture, to make something new and to do it in his own image, his own image. This is different than anything that's come before, anything. He is going to make man in his own image. And to do that, it says um, he makes them male and female. It says he created them male and female in the image of God. He made him. This is important. Because by saying this right now, before we even get into chapter 2, where he details out what actually happened in the process of creation for men and women, he says that male and female are both image bearers of God. They both bear the image of God. And his design was for mankind, humanity, to be expressed in their being male and female, both of whom equally bear his image. But in chapter 2, what God's going to do is he's going to take us deeper and further into what he did when he created man and woman. (laughs) And what does it mean for him to create man and woman? Why do it that way? He could have done it any way he wanted to. Why create that dichotomy? Genesis 2, which will show this event up close, will give us some of that understanding that we need to why he did that. Here's what it says, starting with verse 7. Genesis 2, 7. The Lord God formed the man of the dust of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put man whom he had formed and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so here we see in detail, up close, the creation of the first human being, the head of the human race. And it says that God formed him of the dust of the ground and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life so that he would become a living creature. So this is, in God's design of creating humanity, 
in his way, his approach to create human beings, he didn't make them at the same time, male and female. He didn't create male and female at the same time. God knowing full and well that he would create a woman, that man needed to have a woman, makes man alone. He knows he's going to make Eve. And so he, and he's not confused about it. Why does he do it this way? Why go about it this way? We're going to find out as we go deeper. We see that God places man in the garden with an abundance of trees that will give him food. They're good, pleasing to the eyes, and they will, they're good for food. These are designed to sustain him. But there are two very important trees, trees that you're familiar with. If you've been here two or three Sundays, you've at least heard me talk about these two trees at some point. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These two trees are named because they represent more than simply food. They're more than simply a biological sustenance. Um, These trees are named because they mean more than that. And God takes man and he puts him in the garden to work it and to keep it. That's man's job. But keep in mind, it is only the man at this point. It is just the man. There is no Eve yet. So we get to verse 15 in chapter 2 and it says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God places man in this garden. He tells, you, he tells him, your job, this is your job, to work this garden and to keep this garden. And God gives him every single tree in this garden to eat from, except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God tells him, you eat of that tree, and on that day you will die. You will surely die. So God, who has provided man with everything up to this point, is telling him, don't eat of this tree don't eat of this tree. This is God's command to this man, and it is this man's responsibility to not only work and keep the garden, but to keep away from this one tree, to protect him, to never eat of this one tree. Now, God, having always known that he would create woman, looks down on man and very clearly in Genesis 2.18 says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so God does this very thing. In verse 21, it says this. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now here's the deal. Most of us have read this passage before, so you're probably familiar with these verses, at least at a superficial level. But sometimes we read stuff so much or we're so familiar with the story of something that we don't plumb the depths of the passage. Like, what is going on here? Why do it this way? So God puts Adam to sleep. He puts him to sleep, puts him into a deep sleep, and then he retrieves a rib from his side, and using the rib, he forms woman, who is what Adam calls woman. 
And when he brings her to the man, Adam says, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Adam sees the creature before him, unlike any other creature he's seen populate the garden. And he says, you were made in the image of God, just like me. He sees that. She looks like him and was indeed from him, therefore is equal in essence to him. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, he says, looking at her, stressing the reality of the passage that we read earlier in Genesis 1, that in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so God brings the woman to this man, and, it, and this signals something massive. When the inspired author, who was Moses, wants to explain what we just see when God brings Eve to Adam for the first time, he says this. This is his explanation for it, Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh. This statement here signals the creation of marriage. This is the creation of the institution of marriage in humanity. God makes it and defines marriage right here. Before, this, before the end of the second chapter of the Bible, this is the first institution that we see here. That's profound. And he defines it as a man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife, cleaving to her in such a way that they become one flesh. In other words, marriage isn't just about two people coming together and starting a family together. Marriage is, at the heart of it, two people coming to together and becoming one, becoming one flesh. They're not separate people anymore. They may look that way, but their hearts are united. They are one flesh, and this is the first marriage. And this answers our first question, where does marriage come from? Marriage comes from God. God designed and instituted marriage at the very beginning of history, beginning of Scripture. Now, before we continue, we, we really need to recall some things that are going to become important as we go back to Colossians. The man, Adam, has been commanded by God to work and keep the garden. And he's been told by God, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat of it, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God is protecting Adam. He's telling him, trust me. I am your father. Trust me with this. I will protect you. Don't eat that tree. Now the woman, Adam's wife, who will be called Eve, isn't told this by God in Scripture. There's no point at which we see in Scripture that Eve has communicated this from God. Scripture only says that Adam was told this, and she was created after God gave this command to Adam, which means at the very start of this relationship, Adam has a massive responsibility, a huge responsibility. He has a responsibility to love and to protect his wife from this tree, to protect her from this tree, the deadliness of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which he's been guaranteed by his father will kill her and him if they eat of it. Adam is the one who God will hold responsible for this task to love and protect his wife. And we know the rest of the story. 
Although Eve does know something of the tree's danger and deadliness, Adam fails to protect her, and she is deceived by the serpent. And both of them end up eating of the fruit. Both of them end up sinning before God, eating of the tree that God told Adam not to eat of. So whatever happened between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, that event, whatever happened in between there, is what led to the most devastating event in human history, the fall. It was the entry point for every single evil you can imagine, every disaster that has ever happened to humanity. And worse than that, on this day, Adam and Eve would become spiritually dead. God said that you would die, and though they did not physically die, they suffered something much worse than physical death. They were separated from God. They have, by their actions, effectively divorced themselves of God. But in Genesis 3.9, when God comes down to see them, he calls out to Adam. He knows exactly what's happened. He's not confused about that. He knows how this went down, but he calls out to the man. Why call out to Adam? Because it was Adam's responsibility. It was Adam's responsibility to protect Eve from the tree, and he failed, and now they're both going to suffer. And if you think I'm being hard or unfair to Adam in this, consider Romans 5.12, which says that sin came into the world through one man. That's how sin came into the world, through one man. And he's talking about Adam. In fact, Eve is not mentioned at all in Romans 5. And the reason is because God holds Adam responsible for protecting his wife, for Eve's actions in this situation. Because God gave Adam the command. It was Adam's to keep. And instead of keeping her from the tree at whatever cost, he failed and they were both, she was deceived and then he followed her in taking the tree, taking the fruit. Now, these events in Genesis are what will help us answer the second question. Remember the second question here. How does marriage function? How does it operate? What should a healthy marriage look like? And when I say these events will help us understand, I don't just mean the creation of Adam and Eve. I mean the fall as well. I mean both of these events will help us understand how marriage should function. So with that, let's turn to our text in Colossians. Colossians 3, verse 18. And the question we're going to ask is, do we see any connection in what Paul is saying by the Holy Spirit? God is talking to him through Paul to the church at Colossae. Is there a connection in this text from what we just read in Genesis? Paul is addressing marriage, he's, and, he, and we need to look, does this connect with it? This is what he says in Colossians 3.18. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So God, speaking through the Apostle Paul, has two commands for marriage. One command is, wives, submit to your husbands, and the other command is, husbands, love your wives wives. Now, when we get to a text like this, what happens is people tend to respond in two, one of two extremes. And I believe they're both errors and they're both dangerous to embrace. One error is going to be the more clear of the two, uh, says that if women are called to submit to their husbands, if wives are called to submit, then it must mean that 
they have some kind of less worth or value or importance or significance than the husband. And therefore, they should be treated this way. And so you'll hear someone say something like, a woman's place is in the kitchen. Or they might say, a woman shouldn't have their own opinion. Um, And the underlying sentiment of this error is that they have less value than men. And my hope is that uh, I don't have to explain to you why that's a little bit backwards and wrong in the 21st century, but I will anyways. We've already seen that man and woman are profoundly equal, ontologically, intrinsically equal, because they bear the image of God. But what's more than that, we know, if you've been with us a few weeks ago, that in Christ there is no hierarchy of value between people who are in Christ. There's none. Christ is all and in all, from Colossians uh, 3 earlier, um, a few weeks ago. And Galatians 3.28 says it this way, There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Which doesn't mean that gender is negated or becomes leveled out. That doesn't mean that at all. But what he's saying is that in Christ, in this new humanity that Christ created on the cross, distinctions like male and female or even slave and free or Jew and Greek, they don't define our value before God. They don't define it at all. We are all part of the body of Christ and we are all one body. 1 Peter 3, 7 says it this way. We are fellow heirs of grace, male and female. There's no distinction in value between men and women in Christ Jesus. The most important thing about you today is that you were redeemed by Christ. And that's what gives you your value. That's what gives you your value. It's even more important than being fellow image bearers. Um, but there is a second error. That's error number one. The second error that can happen, and it's just as bad, is one that would say, because men and women are equal before God, this text must be wrong. It must mean something other than submit. The word submit here um, can't be used, they would argue, here if they are intrinsically equal. So it must mean something else, anything else. And the argument would say, They'd offer a thousand ideas of why there's a historical cultural thing that's going on here. or There's something else. They would appeal to something outside of the Bible to explain this word. Now, this word submit in Greek is hupatasso, and it's actually two words. And what it means is simply to voluntarily, willingly place yourself in subjection to something or someone. That's what this word means in the Greek. comes, like I said, two words, hypo, which means under, and tasso, which means to arrange. That's what this word means here. And this second argument, or <clears throat> this second argument would say that it can't mean that. It cannot mean that. If a wife is called to submit to her husband, that is demeaning and evil because they're equal. They're equal. Now, don't get me wrong. There are ways in which the word submit can be twisted and used to exploit women. Absolutely. We just saw it in the first error. Um, but that's not what Paul has in mind here. Clearly, he's established that, that men and women are one in Christ Jesus. There's no difference or hierarchy of, of, of equality or, or value. And his ministry literally is filled with women who are fighting alongside him for the glory of Jesus Christ. So what's the deal? Do we reinterpret this word to mean something that the text doesn't say it means? Or do we just ask the hard question, what is Paul saying here by saying 
wives submit to your husbands, or by saying, husbands, love your wives. What does he mean here? Um, Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. And I think understanding those terms, really understanding those terms will help us answer the second question that we've got, which is, what does a healthy marriage look like? How does it function? And to answer that question, I'm going to turn to Jesus, because he has an answer for it. And during his ministry, Jesus was asked about divorce, and he responds like Jesus always responds, not answering the question about divorce and actually asking about, actually asking another question, this one about marriage. Um, he goes from the secondary issue to the primary issue every time they direct him with a question. And so their question is, is divorce right? Can a man divorce his wife? And Jesus answers it this way. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He quotes scripture and then he gives, he unpacks it. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man man separate. Jesus answers the question about divorce by providing a question about marriage, by making a statement about marriage, namely, what is marriage? And then he describes it using the word of God. Marriage is when two people, male and female, come together and become one flesh. When God joins two human beings and they become one, they are no longer two people anymore. They are one flesh. And therefore, his Secondary point here is divorce isn't as easy as parting ways. It's not that simple. They're one flesh. But think about this for a second. What kind of submission could Paul be referring to if a husband and a wife are one flesh? They're one flesh. It's not a hierarchy of rule. It's one flesh. Well, at the very least, we know it couldn't be hostile or demeaning. It should not be hostile or demeaning. And while they should strive, because they're one flesh, to be of one mind in all things, God will primarily hold one individual responsible of the two for the protection and the provision in this union. And the answer is the man. He holds the husband responsible. And in this context, the Colossians passage is saying that the wife should voluntarily and graciously submit to his lead and allow the husband to bear the responsibility that God has given him. And the husband needs to recognize this is not about rights. This is not about power. This is not a weapon you wield. This is about weighty responsibility, and it's about sacrifice. It's about serving Men lead by serving, and they recognize consciously in this relationship that God Almighty holds them responsible, that it's on their shoulders, and they should love their wives. They should do everything in their power to protect and provide for them, even if it's an area of disagreement, even if they can't be on the same page. Now, there's a critical caveat that we need to observe here in Scripture the authority of a husband is not absolute. It is not absolute. We know this because Paul says that a wife should only submit to her husband as is fitting in the Lord. So if there's a submission that he has in mind that is not fitting in Christ, that submission would actually be sin. 
It would be a sin to submit there. For example, if your husband were to ask you ladies to violate God's clear command in Scripture, you are not obligated to submit in that case. In fact, you would be sinning if you did because only out of obedience to God Almighty do you submit in the first place. So their authority is not absolute. The only authority that is absolute, absolute, is God's authority. And we see that there's also a kind of shared authority in marriage. It's not exclusive to men in every situation. For example, a husband's body is not his own, and a wife's body is not her own in marriage. 1 Corinthians 7.4 makes this really clear. Paul is talking about conjugal rights, what it looks like for men and women to live intimately together. And his question is, do husbands and wives have complete authority over their own bodies? And Paul's statement here would be that they don't. He says in uh, 1 Corinthians 7.4, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And his conclusion is, Therefore, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. So there's a kind of authority that both men and women have in marriage. Since they are one flesh, they belong to each other. That's how close they are. And so the wife here too has a kind of authority over her husband's body, which belongs to her. Now note, Paul says here that perhaps by agreement for a limited time, agreement. So this relationship that he's describing in Colossians has a kind of agreement that is pervasive in it. Um, what it tells us here is that the husband's not arbitrarily making decisions on his own. He's not making decisions in a vacuum and then coming back, this is what God told me. That's not the way it works. Husband, if he's loving his wife well and obeying God, should seek agreement in everything with his wife. Everything. And he should fight to be on the same page. And if they can't be on the same page, then God has called his wife to trust him, trust God, and to submit to whatever course the husband feels will honor God the most. And this act of submission is courageous. It is not an act of weakness. Because it says that I believe that God is in control, and therefore I will follow my husband's lead with grace and dignity and joy. It is way more courageous to do that than not. Way more courageous. And the husband should be fighting for his wife's good in all things even if it means that he has to sacrifice, incur great sacrifice on himself, no matter the cost. Which takes us to the third question. If you remember the third question at the beginning, this is the most important question. What does marriage mean? What is the ultimate purpose of marriage? And for that, I'd like to turn to Ephesians 5. So if you could turn there with me, and then I'll direct you to the verse in a second. As we saw earlier, this book, the story of humanity and God, begins right at the beginning with a marriage. But something about in between the beginning and the end is pervasively about marriage. It is actually central to the biblical narrative because marriage isn't just a human institution. It's not just something people do. It is a picture. It is an analogy. It is a metaphor for something far greater Throughout the Old Testament, we read that marriage doesn't just serve the function of creating communities, of raising children, of procreation. It doesn't just serve those functions. It does those things, but marriage in the Old Testament 
is actually a picture of God's relationship with humanity. God's relationship with mankind, and more specifically, God's relationship with his own people, the nation of Israel. Throughout Scripture, we see God being a husband and Israel being described as his wife. And marriage provides us with the lens, the context for the people of God to understand how it is God sees you. This is how God sees you. He sees you like a husband sees his bride, his wife. And God desires for them to see him this way as a bridegroom, a husband who is worthy to be delighted in and worthy to be enjoyed. And so this is how marriage is depicted throughout much of the Bible. But the people of God don't see him as a bridegroom worthy of delight. They don't see him as that at all. They abandon him. And when they do abandon him, they commit adultery with other gods. Anything that they can deify and put in his place, that's what they do. They push him out of the way and say, we want something else. And they find these other gods worthy of their love and affection and commitment. Not him, not the one true God. And in scripture, this adultery is referred to as idolatry. When the bride of God goes after other gods, it is idolatry. And this is the constant refrain, heartbreaking refrain of the Old Testament. The bridegroom is pursuing his bride and she wants nothing to do with him. And then when the New Testament comes, we see that God is still pursuing his people. That this pursuit begins to come to a head and now God will enter the world in the person of Christ Jesus and he will prove to his bride he hasn't given up yet. And Ephesians 5.25 explains how this goes down. Through, of all things, a command to husbands. This is what it says, 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church, his bride, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Paul's telling the Ephesian men, the Ephesian husbands, that the model for loving your wives, husbands, is Christ Jesus because Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church on the cross. The church, in this analogy, is the bride of Christ. He loves her. Jesus loves her deeply. This is the kind of love. This kind of love is the kind of love that God expects from husbands toward their wives. The kind of love that is willing to lay down your life for her. That's the, kind, that's the expectation in this text. Christ gave himself up for the church, therefore men. This is what you need to do. And why did he do this? That he might sanctify her, that he might make her pure and holy and blameless. For Christ, it was by becoming an atoning sacrifice, for laying down his life, he could cleanse the church with the washing of water with the word through the power of the cross alone. Christ died for the church to make her clean and pure 
and holy, but what does it look like for men? What does it look like for men? What do we give up in sacrifice in order to, to fulfill this commandment, in order to show our wives this kind of love? Is it our recreation? Is it our space, our free time? Is it um, not an option to just cut and run when it gets tough? Is that what we give up? The answer is yes. And the answer is anything that will keep your wife from knowing God's love through you because Christ gave up everything for you to see it. Everything. And if this is where the passage ends in Ephesians, it would be actually a really helpful passage on understanding how a husband should love his wife. But it doesn't end here. Paul doesn't do that. In verse 32, he says something that is staggering. Verse 32 is possibly the most important verse. I would say it is easily the most important verse in the Bible about what marriage means, why we have marriage, what's the ultimate purpose. Paul, quoting Genesis, Moses, and quoting Jesus, in their definition of marriage, says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul says this mystery is profound. He says this mystery which is marriage he's talking about here, is profound. Why marriage exists in the first place. He says the reason it exists is actually Christ Jesus in the church. That's the reason marriage exists. That's the primary and ultimate reason that marriage exists. It isn't ultimately about having a fulfilling life or having children. Marriage isn't about procreation or building families or building stable communities. Ultimately, those things are good. They're fine and they're great. They are secondary, infinitely secondary. The ultimate purpose of marriage is the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why it exists. It's the glory of Jesus Christ. Marriage is a parable of Jesus' pursuit of his bride, his own people, his chosen ones. And marriage exists first and foremost to show us how God ultimately rescued humanity. It is a dramatization of a reality that is far greater than every single marriage combined on this planet. It isn't about us. My marriage with Rachel isn't about me or her, ultimately. It's not. My marriage is about Jesus and his beloved bride, the church. It is a dramatization, and that fact should shape how marriage actually functions. For example, in this same text in Ephesians 5, Paul once again tells the wives in the Ephesian church, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And the reason he gives for this is that the church is called to submit to Christ. It is a parable. Submission does not exist for the benefit of the husband. It doesn't. And it doesn't exist for the benefit of the wife either. It exists to point the bride to the bride of Christ and the kind of love that she should have for Christ. And husbands, in the same text, Paul says, lay your lives down for your wives. Lay them down. Because just like the church is Christ's body, your wives are your own body. Marriage is, like we've said multiple times already, becoming one flesh. And the reason it's that way 
is because Christ is one flesh with the church. He is one with the church. And so husbands, Paul says, love your wives like they're your own flesh. Because people need to know this is how Jesus feels about the church. They need to know this. They need to see you sacrificially lead and bear the full weight of responsibility for your wife's good and your family's good. This isn't about competency. I need to make this clear. This isn't about competency or ability or intellect. And I know this, I don't mean to upset any of you men here, because I know the women in this church and they literally could run circles around us in a lot of these ways. Um, It's not about those categories. It isn't about competency. God never picks the most competent people to do stuff like this. This is about a disposition and an inclination. The husband takes the initiative and gently, lovingly leads by God's grace. And the wife courageously lays hold of her husband's hand and trusts in God's provision. And both glorify God in their own profound and complementary ways. And the glory we see in marriage is the glory we see in the gospel. Think about it for a moment. For Christ to have purchased his bride, there was an enormous cost that had to be paid for that. An enormous, infinite cost that had to be paid for that. His bride, who had for so long abandoned him and rejected him and refused him, for the church to even exist, for people to trust Christ, a massive price had to pay. Go all the way back to Genesis 2. Remember what it says. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. A deep sleep. And then while he hung there on the cross, God took something from him. Unlike Adam, which was only a rib, God took something infinitely more precious from his son. There was a cost that needed to be paid for this bride to come into existence. A cost needed to be paid, and that cost was the matchless and precious blood of Jesus Christ. It was only, that's the only thing that could purchase the church in order that he might present his bride to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless. That's the cost that Christ paid for his bride. And this is the reason, ultimately, that marriage exists, to point to Jesus and to point to the gospel. So for those who aren't married right now, Slight sidebar, but this is actually probably one of the most important parts. Consider this. The most important part of marriage, the most important parts, the very meaning of marriage is already yours in Christ Jesus. It is already yours. Everything else about marriage, whether you feel it's important or not, and I'm not trying to diminish marriage, everything else about marriage is a mere shadow compared to the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You already have the best part. Single or married, if you are in Christ, you know the best part of marriage. To close, I want to ask one last question. What about God's bride? We know the price that Christ paid, his own blood, but does he get her in the end? Is there an end to this story where Christ gets his bride? Well, the Bible begins with a marriage, And it ends with the marriage. Listen to Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, which is the church, coming down out of heaven 
from God. God's bringing a bride to someone. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Our marriages tell the story of God's pursuit of mankind, the story of the gospel. Because of Christ's faithfulness to his bride, the failure that happened in the garden to divorce us from him could be reversed. And God Almighty could dwell with men forever. This is the end of pain. This is the end of loss. This is the end of every single tear. That's what marriage points to. It's the reason marriage exists, to point to this reality and to tell people the greatest news in the world. Let's pray. Father God, when we talk about marriage, we are truly talking about one of the most remarkable realities in the universe. And although it serves so many helpful purposes in culture, in society, in our own lives, Father, the ultimate purpose, Father, we cannot forget, no matter where we find ourselves today, the ultimate purpose is the glory of Jesus Christ in his deep, infinite, limitless love for his bride, the church. And if our faith is in you, we're part of that story. We're the best part of that story, loved beyond any ability of ours to comprehend, pursued from before the foundation of the world so that we would be his bride. He's done everything. He's removed every barrier. Help us feel that, Father. And may that reality, if we are married or if we're going to be married, Father, may that reality penetrate our hearts to such a degree that it transforms us to be loving and gracious and courageous no matter if we're submitting or if we're loving sacrificially. No matter if we're laying down our lives or if we're holding someone's hand while we trust God. Whatever it looks like, Father, work that reality into our hearts so that we can be living, breathing parables of your great gospel, so that we can be a dramatization of the greatest news in the world, Father, that our very lives can be a witness. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.